It's Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. Our goal had always been, I said at the beginning, was to change the DNA of the federal agencies so they really thought about women and girls issues as an intrinsic part of what they did every day, not as some extra thing that somebody made them do. Tina Chin is assistant to the president and chief of staff to the first lady. She also leads the White House Council on Women and Girls. In early March, she spoke about the Obama administration's accomplishments and the agenda ahead for women and girls issues. She was on stage in Washington, D.C. for the Aspen Institute's Forum on Women and Girls. Chin says this administration thinks differently about how to tackle problems around social justice and economic opportunity for women. In 2009, the president signed an executive order that created the White House Council on Women and Girls. It requires every federal agency to consider the needs of women and girls in the policies they draft, programs they create, and legislation they support. Chin says it's made a difference in areas like military and health care. Today's episode not only features Chin, but also women in the audience at the D.C. Forum. Many are trailblazers themselves when it comes to fighting for equality. Their questions to Chin touch on affordable housing, women who are incarcerated, and what's being done for women in rural areas. First, Chin sits down with Washington Post columnist Jonathan Capehart. So we're in the final year of the Obama administration. You are the executive director of the President's Council on Women and Girls. And I'm just wondering, since we are in the last year, what are the priorities um, for the administration in this area? So, uh, you know, what remaining priorities for this last year, I will say first, um, one of the things I am really proud that we have done, that we want to continue to run through the tape in the hopes that then someone will pick it, continue it and pick it up, um, is this construct of the White House Council on Women and Girls. Uh, because the idea we had, um, the president and Valerie and I, when we started it in March of 2009, was not to just replicate a White House office on women and girls policy, which the Clinton administration had had, which was wonderful, but then quickly went away in the next ensuing eight years, um, but was to create a council modeled on the Domestic Policy Council and the National Economic Council that was housed in the White House, but really consisted of all of the federal agencies, all of the policy offices, so that everyone would do women and girls work, you know, not just a few people, but that every agency would think about it, whether it's women in the military, whether it's engineers in the Department of Transportation, whether it's making sure that as we move to a clean energy economy, women are included in that, and entrepreneurs, making sure the SBA pays attention to women entrepreneurs. And I have to say that I think it worked. I think it's working. We see it across the board in economics and education and healthcare, um, where agencies are really owning, making sure that women and girls' needs are addressed. Our goal had always been, I said at the beginning, was to change the DNA of the federal agencies. So they really thought about women and girls' issues as an intrinsic part of what they did every day, not as some extra thing that somebody made them do as an exercise at the, at the tail end of their policies. Um, and that's one of the things we hope in the course of this next year continues to get embedded. You know, I, I, call me <clears throat> naive or not knowledgeable, but I, something that left out at me is you talked about women and girls work, um, women and girls needs. So can you either zero in on a particular agency or a program that sort of exemplifies women and girls work or the needs of women and girls? 
Well, I mean, healthcare. I mean, let's do one that is very familiar to, to probably to lots of folks in the room is 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 healthcare. Um, and so it has a lot of dimensions when we talk about making sure that women's health needs are um, taken care of when we think about the Affordable Care Act or we think about reducing teen pregnancies. Um, um, in the Affordable Care Act, it was really important throughout the development of that to make sure that, for example, we addressed gender discrimination in, in health insurance policies. That we made sure, and I have to give Senator Barbara Mikulski um, uh, kudos for this because she was the champion for the amendment in the Affordable Care Act that made sure that we incorporated for the first time. So this is the difference between when you think about women's health issues and when you don't. So for the entire history of our women's health insurance up until the Affordable Care Act, no one bothered to lay out a set of standards for a well woman's health care checkup. There was no such thing. You know, there was, you know, some of us cared about going in for an annual physical, but there was not really a set of standards that said, yes, it was important for women to go in every year. And when you go in, here's the set of things that you should take care of. And if they're of childbearing age, you should make sure that to talk to them about contraception or how, what, their, what their childbearing plans are. And if they want contraception, they should be able to get it. And they should be able to get it without having to pay extra. Um, uh, otherwise, women were paying extra. They were paying extra just to get health insurance coverage because they were women. Um, so once you put a women's lens, when you put a gender lens into how you're doing policy, then a whole set of new things come up. One other healthcare example is until the Affordable Care Act requirement of making sure that medical research is done with a diverse set of research objectives, meaning Take care, you know, let's look at the, the how, how treatments affect women differentially, how they attract people of color differentially. It didn't happen. Medical research was based on a model of white males. You know, treatments were designed for white males. Side effects were based upon whether white males had the side effects or not without recognizing the different biology, the different, you know, disease, you know, um, ramifications for women. So that's a kind of not as often talked about, but hidden really transformational piece of the Affordable Care Act. So how hard was it, or maybe it's still <laughs> hard, to change the mindset within the government to change the DNA that you're right. talking about, to get the changes that you're talking about, and also to ensure that they continue after January 20th, 2017 at noon. Yeah. <laughs> Just to be precise there. Right. <laughs> Light at the end of the tunnel, right. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, so it's some things are were kind of easy. I mean, I think, they, and actually I came from the private sector, so one of the things that I do think is a, there's a lot more focus on in the public sector is on diversity of appointments. There's a lot of attention paid, you know, I think, you know, not as much as we need to, but far more than when you see the, look at the private sector, on diversity in the workforce. But even, you know, once you get women into the jobs, making sure they're being paid attention to and, and the issues that they're raising are paying attention to, you still need to do work on. Obviously, we really led better being the first bill that the president signed. You know, all of those economic issues were front and center during the recession. Um, and I have to give our economic team a lot of credit because things like the earned income tax credit and the child tax credit were fundamental parts of the Recovery Act, um, which I don't think a lot of other folks trying to battle the recession would have appreciated. And Larry Summers to Gene Sperling to Jason Furman all understood, our economists, how important it was to make sure that poor women and children weren't left behind as we were trying to bail out Detroit and, and you, know, you know, do the infrastructure builds that we needed for the Recovery Act. So those were intrinsic parts. Another intrinsic part, again, often not um, talked about, 
was in the Recovery Act, we made sure that we put extra money in for domestic violence shelters. And I give Lynn Rosenthal, our first White House advisor on violence against women credit, because she was at the table saying, domestic violence shelters right now are getting crunched. They're, they've got lower, you know, there's, there's fewer foundation dollars flowing to them in the recession. There's fewer state um, funds flowing to them in the recession. And they're getting hammered by clients. Because when recession hits and you lose your job, domestic violence goes up. And so we put extra money in, in there for that. Um, but that requires being at the table, you know, so you have to be at the table um, and keep raising it. Um, one thing that I like to talk about that was actually easier than I thought it would be was women in the military, um, interestingly. Um, I come from an era, I tell the story often to our young interns, my first experience with the women's movement was in 1978 with the Equal Rights Amendment. For those of you, there's a few nodding hands again, you know, there's a few of us who are of the right age, not everybody to remember. 1978, the Equal Rights Amendment, I lived in Illinois, we were trying to get the Equal Rights Amendment placed. Phyllis Schlafly, the biggest boogie person in the room on, you know, ratifying the ERA was women in the military. The horror that women would have to be going in the military if the Equal Rights Amendment passed. And it basically probably was the biggest issue that stopped the ratification in Illinois. Fast forward, you know, to 2011, I think it was, for the first time, and all of a sudden I get across my desk the fact that Secretary Mabus of the Navy is going to just, he's going to sign the order that lets women officers go in submarines. And he's got to send a notification to Congress. Notification goes to Congress, and sort of guess what happens? Nothing. Nothing. The best news of all. Nothing not a happened. Peep? Not a peep. Not a nasty not, tweet. Not, not Nothing nasty from anybody. Tweet. Not a peep. Um, the backstory I got, which I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, was one of the reasons that the Navy was so supportive of putting women on submarines, even though it was very controversial for a long time, because think about it, long journeys under the ocean, many months at a time, very small, close quarters, always nervous about putting women on, on the submarines, um, was because the submariners are to the Navy what fighter pilots are to the Air Force, the cream of the cream of the cream, priding themselves on getting the you know top 10% of the Naval Academy graduates into the submarine ranks. And guess what? Couldn't do it anymore if they didn't put women on the boats because <laughs> women were in the top 10% of the Naval Academy grads, which I love part of that part of the story. <laughs> but that's an example of like easier than I thought it would be mm-hmm. because the march of time, because of the other things that we've done, which is all their struggles to get women into the academies, to get our educational systems you know, to where now women are 50% of college graduates. Um, and that over time, as we keep doing that foundational work, then you get to a point where you know, opening up our military to women, you know, is something that can just happen. Mm-hmm. Okay, so this is a perfect segue to my next question. So given this foundation that you're talking about, both in, in decades past, but also the last seven years, how do you move the agenda forward in the remaining year, but more importantly, when you're no longer here? Well, I got to say... In office, I mean. Perfect setup. <laughs> Be clear. Perfect setup. Perfect setup for me is that that is a big piece of the United States of women. We see it more importantly as like an organizing moment, an organizing 
um, mechanism to really t be able to talk about in the months. So this event is so wonderful leading up to May 23rd and then the money, many months leading out of May 23rd um, to really shine a light on these issues. And we want to talk about not so much the analysis of the problem, but we want to showcase the solutions. And there's solutions big and small out here in D.C., across the country, internationally. We want to talk about what's happening on the international front as well, all the great things being done to reduce maternal mortality overseas. I just came from a great Let Girls Learn event with the First Lady at Union Market, you know, that work being done for international girls' education. Um, we want to bring that together um, to sort of showcase how this, the, both the achievements that have been made and also the intersectionality. And I know you've all been talking about intersectionality over the last couple of <clears> days because we know that although we have a health segment and an education segment, entrepreneurship, women's leadership, education, violence against women. You know, women don't lead their lives that way, right? I mean, and as I just said, education is what leads to leadership in the military, which leads to, you know, equal pay issues and working families issues getting addressed. So we also want to have all of the people who work on those issues together. Um, and then the last piece of it that is, I think, important to your question of how do you make it last is to communicate this to young women, to make sure that young women are fully pulled into this and own, own these issues as well, because that's how. That's a big answer of how this goes forward. So if you saw our logo, we were very intentional. It was developed with a millennial marketing firm <laughs> to speak to millennials in terms of both the marketing of it, the United State of Women. But we also seriously want to engage this, this, this up-and-coming generation of young women. I am of the view that we need to just find a place to sort of make sure folks understand these issues and how they impact their lives. And I'm really convinced that we have young leaders out there who are just ready to take these things on. Have you noticed, and I'm maybe veering. Oh, I know where you're going. Okay. What, <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> of young young women, the next, right. gener the next generation of, of women who are coming up in their leaders. How are they different to your mind, personally speaking, from from the women of your generation right. and and what you did and went through to get to this point? It's an interesting question because I haven't really thought about it. So I want to say something that I haven't really fully formed. You're going to hear me this like articulate it as I'm saying it. But I think it's a little bit like, you know, you know, discrimination to jur and discrimination. You know, I mean, it's like it's like what we all faced was the stuff right in our face. Like we couldn't actually get the job, right? You know, the the the, the want ads were separated men and women. Um, you know, because Ms. was a big part of breaking down. You know, um, discrimination. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the cases that she brought. I I was a working person when she's bringing basic cases around sex discrimination in the workplace and whether women can actually even write contracts for themselves. Um, so it was sort of in our face in a very in a way that we we could see it right. Right now, you know, and and in fact, it was a little bit in the first lady's speech today. You know, we're it, we are happily in a generation where young women have been fifty fifty in college, right? So they see that as they're coming out of college. You know, they have reproductive freedoms, and so what's happening when you get to the workplace and. Yeah, you got you got the same job as the guys who you're graduating with. But then over time, and you don't even know it's happening because there's not pay transparency in your workplace. You don't even know what's happening, except that it's happening because you don't you, you can't see it in the job in the pay discrimination that's happening. Um, you sort of feel maybe there's something going on when they're not listening to you in the meeting, but they think that maybe it's you. But you don't really 
have a name for it anymore because it's not really labeled as we only want the girls to do this and then we want the boys to do that. It just manifests itself in these subtle ways that I think are less in your face. One of the things I think that's really important that we've, we've talked about a lot in the administration, when we talk about working family issues and we say it's not just an, a, a personal issue for you to try to figure out how to take care of your children and how, for you to figure out how to take time off. It's a public policy issue. It's the thing that's keeping women from advancing in the workforce. It's the thing that's keeping us from tapping into the entire talent pool that we have in our labor force. So it's something that policymakers need to worry about. Names that issue identifies it as a public policy issue, names the discrimination that's going on for what it is um, in a way that I think needs to happen because otherwise it's hard to ferret out. And a lot. what's even harder is the young women who just think they're all by themselves, mm-hmm. right? They're just all by themselves in their tech firm being one woman out of 10 guys, you know, in their working group trying to struggle with these issues and thinking, well, it's just me. I just got to figure it out. But it's not you. It's the way we've got institutions organized that don't have to be organized in a way that discriminate against working parents, not just working women. It's, it, you know, it's all of those things. My name is Vivian Nixon. I'm executive director of College and Community Fellowship in New York City. We work with women and girls that are criminal justice involved, helping them get college degrees. Given the fact that uh, between 1980 and 2010, the growth in women's imprisonment has been 646%. Um, 73% of them have mental health issues. 81% of the juvenile girls have been physically or sexually abused in their history. And 63% of the women in prison are primary caretakers of minor children. what does it take, and, and most of them don't have uh, even a high school diploma yet, um, and the administration is good on criminal just, justice issues, but how do we um, move forward, really including women and girls' criminal justice issues into the national conversation? Well, thank you. Thank you for that question, and thank you for those statistics, because I think raising that profile is, is critical and important. Um, we have been, so it, it, an integral part of our criminal justice conversation has been making sure we're paying attention to the needs of incarcerated, you know, and, and uh, women and, um, you know, women who are coming out of, of uh, prisons. Um, and the issue of incarcerated mothers is definitely something we want to pay attention to. The Women's Foundation's uh, Prosperity Together, a big piece of trying to address the needs of women and girls of color, and an effort that we all have been trying to do from the Council of Women and Girls is to, again, make sure we've got resources and increase the resources available to um, to those women who are struggling, including among those, you know, women who are coming or who are, who are coming out um, of of prison. Um, but you know, the criminal justice reform is a huge piece of this. That I would really urge, you know, folks in terms of um, we had sort of a what else did get done this year? Criminal justice reform we think could get done this year. Really? It, well. You know, we have, the latest is there is a bipartisan group, you know, in the Senate and a bipartisan group in the House that are working their way towards, you know, a solution. You know, there's still some some little tricky things to navigate, but by and large, I think on the Senate side, they've got, they're, they're about to have a bill that we think we, we're happy with and we can move forward with. Um, so I do think that. So I'd, all of the, I'd really urge, you know, we have a moment that we should, but those moments only really come to fruition when there's stuff happening in the states. When, you know, when members go home for their, you know, Easter break coming up or whatever that they hear about, there's, you know, their their constituents caring about these issues. So that's one I'd urge everybody to to speak out about. Okay. Hi, Ronit Abney. Thank you so much for your service. First of all, 
Um, I'm wondering, as, as we're talking about health implications that are often tested on men but not on women, and we're in an age of mobile technology, the standards that I've looked at, the tests that have been done, have essentially been done on large men, and the implications of, of um, Wi-Fi, wireless technology on male bodies over time. And I'm curious, as we're in this moment where wearables are coming up, where you have people of reproduct- women of reproductive age, children, to what extent are we putting in that testing for the health ramifications over time. We're still dealing with the aftermath of lead, asbestos, nicotine, and for decades people said safe, 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 not safe. And you're seeing that coming up where a lot of the tests on mobile technology are taking such a huge group of minimal users that use their phones six minutes a day or less. And then those high-intensity users are just part of a... They're they're washed out in terms of their results. So I'm curious about how we put women and girls in into the mix of testing the safety of these technologies as they're expanding. That specific question, um, I don't know the answer to, but we can find out more. Um, but th- your question underlies a broader problem in the tech space, which we are conscious of and trying to do a lot more work on. And that is the lack of women in STEM, not, you know, all the way up and down the ladder, you know, falling out of STEM classes when they're starting in the fourth grade, all the way through, you know, and there's been many articles, including in this weekend's New York Times, about the challenges faced, you know, by women in STEM careers, whether it's in, you know, the, in academia or in um, the private sector. And when you don't have women at those technology firms, this is what happens, right, is that you're not thinking about how else to test it or how, how what, what your whole universe of users are. Um, I will say that there are a lot of people who are realizing that, so i got to give a shout-out to Mark Benioff, for example, at Salesforce. I mean, Mark joined us at the Equal Pay event that the president did at the end of January because on his own, Mark, you know, at the instigation of two of the women who work for him, you know, did a study of their entire workforce on equal pay, found out they were indeed paying their women an accumulated amount of $3 million less than the men for the same jobs, put that $3 million in. But he's a guy who now speaks pretty passionately about why, not just women equal pay, but why he needs a diverse leadership and workforce because those kind of questions are exactly the kind of questions that come up when you have diversity in your leadership, and you'll miss it. And so, what will happen if they down the road, speaking as a litigator, they don't, they don't, they don't do the testing? All of a sudden, you get those impacts coming from your product. You're going to pay at the back end, you know, when you get product liability suits. There was great success with My Brother's Keeper, right? Certainly externally, but internally in the use of data to actually drive and force policy amongst the interagency group. Certainly within criminal justice, others. Is there a similar? playbook for women and girls during this last stretch of the administration. Indeed. There absolutely there is. I mean and that is what we're doing with both the council with the council of women and girls with the interagency <clears throat> efforts that we have. Um, both from a data perspective, so working with DJ Patel and all in his team on sort of how we, you know, marshal some of the big data um, and how we disaggregate by gender as well as um, by ethnicity um, and take a look at, at those impacts. So, yes, no, absolutely. And it's one of the things where why I'm so proud of the work that we've done in the Council of Women and Girls because we've got people in all of the agencies who are already thinking that way. I'm Mindy Reiser. I'm vice president of an NGO called Global Peace Services, but this is a domestic question. Mm-hmm. Housing is terribly expensive in our great city. We have an increasing number of women who are single. We have single moms with families. What are you trying to do with HUD, with the developers, to make affordable housing a real possibility for women who are not earning astronomical salaries? So, you know, HUD, I think both under um, Secretary Donovan and under Secretary Castro have really spent a lot of time, you know, both trying to make 
affordable housing more available, um, and also to eliminate some of the discriminatory you know, practices. Um, so, for example, you know, one of the things that um, uh, early on Secretary Donovan did was to you know issue. Um, uh, directives to both PHA, both public housing authorities, and the landlords who are using Section 8, um, barring discrimination against domestic violence victims, which never was not actually the rule before he did that. So, as you know, you know, like lots of landlords would refuse to rent to women, but you know, women with children, or would kick somebody out when a domestic violence, you know, um, occurrence would happen, and that also actually would discourage women from reporting or getting the protection they need. So we have eliminated that, you know, as as you know, a federal requirement. If you're a federal landlord, you cannot <clears throat> discriminate against domestic violence victims, you know, and which is sort of one one piece I know intimately in answer to your question. Hi, I'm. Reema Nanavati and I come from the Self-Employed Women's Association in India where we've organized some 2 million uh, women and girls and we also work in Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal and Myanmar as well and um, what was so fascinating is that you have the Women and Girls Council within the White House as well and I was thinking that in our part of the region that's what where a lot of investment from the policy point of view and also from the government's budgetary allocation also needs to be done. So do you have any plans of a greater coalition or, you know, region-to-region coalitions? Absolutely. I mean, there are several ways. Um, I mean, I I will say that USAID and the Millennium Challenge Corporation and State Department each, from the very beginnings, again, in the first term, have been wonderful at um, having a gender lens, so each of them have a gender policy and how they, they, they do across the board their grant making, but specifically the one, one um, education that you raised has been a particular focus of ours, as you know, for the last year. So today, in fact, is the one-year anniversary of Let Girls Learn, right, our whole-of-government effort, which includes not only an increase in U.S. Um, development assistance for girls' education and you know, the effort that we're doing with the First Lady through the Peace Corps, um, to support gra- grassroots and community-based projects. But it also includes diplomatic efforts and bilateral di- diplomatic conversations and also advocating in multilateral at the UN and elsewhere. So, for example, when we, the First Lady, right after we launched last year, we went to Japan, and in addition to going to Cambodia to visit on-the-ground programming. But the purpose of going to Japan as a developed donor country was to encourage them to increase their assistance. So they, for example, then announced a $300 million increase in their development assistance uh, for Girls' Ed. When Prime Minister Sharif came to visit last fall um, to visit the president, and First Lady um, saw Mrs. Sharif and um, the Prime Minister's daughter. On that occasion, we promoted Let Girls Learn. He reiterated a commitment he had made previously to double his you know, um, domestic spending on education from 2% to 4%. Um, we put it, uh, announced $70 million in USAID um, to go specifically to girls' education projects in Pakistan. So we are trying and embedding in all of our engagements. The total of the last year of that kind of international assistance is over half a billion dollars that we were able to, between the UK and South Korea and others, who contributed in. So we are, that, that's one way in which we do see this as trying to encourage 
um, other countries around the world you know, to, to step up on this issue. Hello. Hello. My name is Nia Evans, and I'm coming from Wake Forest University in the Angela Cooper Center. I have a question I want to follow up about your comments about youth. So my specific question is, what are the challenges that the council has faced in not only harnessing youth voice, but incorporating it? So I sit in a unique perspective as someone who has participated in events with the council, both as a student and as a professional. So I wonder about my own time and how has the work that I have done with the council informed the approach, informed the policy? So I'm curious, how do you navigate that generational dissonance that happens at times? And how do you make sure that you are both harnessing those voices, but also bringing them in? It's hard. I mean, I'll tell you, one of the things that's hard is to remember that we're part of the government. So we had a hard time, and it took us a long time, um, actually, and there are lots of places where we don't do it well, where we had to make that transition from the a billion-dollar, biggest, most participatory you know, p- political campaign in history, and all of a sudden we went from that to the White House where there were six laptops only and, and, and no, 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 no spreadsheets with names you know, because we couldn't take any of the political names into the White House um, and no social media, you know, at the time. Um, so, it, all of, you know, the, you, there is a difficulty and we've had to sort of figure out how to harness those voices from the public in and, be, and still be the government. I think we are just now in the last several, couple of years getting our sea legs around it. Um, and come up with some ways of both including. So I, the one I come to the most is what we've been able to do on campus sexual assault because that was an issue that came from a policy. It was a big policy that we announced, rolled out in uh, 2013, where we cha- you know, made clear Title IX required sexual assault policies um, and responses by college campuses. Um, that then enabled this huge youth movement, which I have to give young people on campus credit for driving, that they took that tool of Title IX and started to use it for themselves. And the young women in the hunting ground, for example, that, that sort of tells you the story of how young people on campus were able to use that tool of Title IX and then bring it to us. Because then what happened was they brought that to us about how prevalent that what we did with just putting out the policy in Title IX wasn't enough that we still had these extraordinary numbers of um, young women getting assaulted. And most heartbreakingly for me, the inadequate responses, you know, up to two years after the policy was out there from colleges and universities. Um, And then that led us to doing It's On Us. That led us to not only upping our enforcement, so doing all the things government's supposed to do, increasing money for this Office of Civil Rights and Department of Education, increasing our policymaking to make these good practices clear, you know, to schools, upping the enforcement and publishing the enforcement, you know, names so that you all now have the names of the schools under investigation. But to get to young people, to really empower them and involve them, took us designing this new thing that we'd never done before, which was a campaign, and a campaign designed by millennial marketers and and messengers, and with young people providing the focus groups for us going into it. Our interns that summer actually were huge in helping us design it and put together the It's On Us campaign. This is the thing for those of you who stayed up late enough on the Oscars to see the vice president introduce the Lady Gaga song. It's that, that campaign campaign, which is now on 500 campuses, you know, over 280,000 people have taken the pledge, is really, we view it as a student-led, student-driven effort to do prevention around sexual assault. So that, you know, in in sort of one slice has been an area where we've tried to learn how to do the very thing that you're talking about, which is incorporate young people's voices, recognizing we're still the government, but then be able to do something with the national platform that we have that we hope empowers them. And we hope to do that again. I mean, United States of Women is something we also hope will have a similar momentum to it around these issues and that people will begin to own themselves. 
Hi, I'm Carol Robles-Roman, the president and CEO of Legal Momentum, the Women's Legal Defense and Education Fund. You've given us such wonderful information and, 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 and motivated all of us, but we've really seen the president just drill down and really accomplish a lot. And I don't think I'm telling tales out of school that some of us are a little bit scared about what's going to happen on January 21st, mm-hmm. 2017. Um, I'm hoping that the president is going to announce or you're going to announce an executive order in May that memorializes, prioritizes, you know, lays it down at law, um, all these changes and reforms that you've outlined. So I'd push back a little bit because I actually think the answer isn't one executive order because remember, an executive order is really only as good as the president who issued the executive order anyway, too, because that can become back. So really our theory, I, I would submit that one of the things that we've been doing is a whole raft of regulations and executive orders. So, for example, there is an executive order on campus sexual assault. Since I was just talking about that, let me use that as an example. There is one that creates this task force on campus sexual assault, but it doesn't stop there. So we've got regulations and sub-regulatory guidance on Title IX. We've got, you know, a Dear Colleague letter that's out there. We've got FAQs that are out there to the schools. We now have a whole regime where all of the federally funded schools right now are trying to implement that. So that's actually an interesting constituency that doesn't want to turn on a dime and like all of a sudden change it. And we've tried to, through It's On Us, build a grassroots constituency that will also have an outcry. Like if somebody tried to go in there, I think right now, worst case, and tried to undo Title IX, say sexual assault isn't under Title IX anymore, I'm actually pretty confident that you know there will be students across college campuses throughout the country and their parents who would rise up. Um, and that's, so it's a multi-level. So that's why I, I think what we're trying to build, and, and we've got career staff inside of the Department of Education and, Just, and Justice who, who own this issue now too, and they don't go away, right, when we leave. So that's the way we're thinking about this in kind of like a lot of different ways instead of just kind of one way. Um, I'm Kavita Ramdas. So I've just come back from three years as the representative um, for the Ford Foundation in India, which is also responsible for South Asia. And I guess... One of the things I've been speaking about is that I find it perturbing that we have, on the one hand, a White House and an administration that is deeply committed to women and girls. And on the other hand, we are still struggling in a world where there isn't an explicit connection between the violence we experience inside homes and families and the violence that is normalized by states. And by that, I mean talking about defense expenditure India is now the largest purchaser of um, defense uh, weaponry in the world. The major people who sell weapons to developing countries are developed nations. The top five are the United States, France, China, France, China, Russia, um, and England, and Israel. Um, You mentioned Pakistan just now. My husband is Pakistani. Um, You know, they're going to increase their budget on women's education from 2 to 4%, they spend 40% of their annual budget on defense expenditure. I believe deeply that until women's, mobil- women's organizations across the world mobilize for peace, to have a country that spends more than the next 30 countries combined on military sends a very difficult message for mm-hmm. us to then be able to uphold a commitment to women and girls. So I'm looking for 
our administration to begin to start making those connections. We can't talk about peace and justice and women's rights in the same breath unless we begin to walk our talk on that stuff. So I'd love your thoughts on that, Tina. So, so I have a couple of different responses. One on the one hand is that I will say one of the things we have tried to do here domestically with our own budget, and the president has been you know, quite stalwart on this, um, and you see it playing out actually as we speak right now for the fiscal 17 budget. Um, and that is is to try to achieve some balance, you know, as we as we look at the for those of you who are deeply in the in the budget wonks, you know, as, as we look at the spending caps, to make sure that we do not lift. There's a great temptation to lift the defense spending cap without lifting the domestic spending cap, um, and that's something we have been very clear is that you know they will all rise together or they will all get cut together, so that you do not have domestic, you know, even even with the threats that people, you know, that we face, that we have, you know, military in our defense spending, you know, in line with our domestic spending, and that we're not starving our domestic, the, 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 the enormous domestic needs we have um, in, the, in the discretionary budget, um, as against, you know, what's happening in the in the defense budget. So that's, that's one thing we have tried to do, and I know the president has talked about that um, uh, multilaterally. Uh, it's, it is something that you know, one, one of the ways to, I think, you know, address the issue is just from people's own self-interest, which is if you have a stagnant economy, you know, investing in your domestic side and investing in education and jobs and housing and, you know, other things, you know, um, is going to help stimulate your economy more, right, than, you know, weapon spending is going to. Um, but it's also kind of complex in a, in, a, in a, and I'll be really frank with you, I mean, my personal view, this is very much a personal view, having now... And it's very different than the view, I will tell you, that I had when I was just a women's activist in Chicago. <laughs> is I've now seen in the inside now of what kinds of decisions you have to make in a really complicated and threatening world. And I have come to have enormous respect for our military and the way they approach these and our all-volunteer force and the sacrifices they make and the seriousness with which they come to decision-making around use of force. Um, and... And so I think it's not so easy, you know, in a world where we have women being captured and imprisoned and where we have a terrorist organization that actually thinks it's okay as a sacrament of their religion to say that women can be taken and enslaved if they're Yazidi or if they're Christian and they're not Muslim and be your slave and be your sex slave. It's just not okay under the religion for your brother to also take her. And the issue of fatwa as a religious document that says that's okay to do, when that's out there, it's not so easy just to say we don't need a strong force because there are some things that we have to do to protect our women and girls as well from the violence that is perpetrated on them um, you know, in, in situations that we face right now. Um, what I do think we also need to do, and Secretary Clinton gets a lot of credit for pushing this through when she was Secretary of State, is to make sure that... Women are fully part of the decision-making around those kinds of issues. So that's why, for example, the president issued an executive order when she was Secretary of State so that we have a national action plan on women, peace, and security. The requirement of that um, is to make sure that women are fully involved in peacemaking decisions, in peacemaking that happens and discussions that happen in places like Afghanistan, um, that those needs of protecting women and um, children in places, times of conflict and places of conflict are fully incorporated into all of the strategic decisions that are being made. Um, 
without speaking out of school too much, I actually had a conversation with somebody from the military who said he's been implementing this now for the last three years, and he gets it. I mean, remarkable. It was one I, I say that at the risk of sort of disclosing a little bit of something. It's not classified or anything, but it was just. <laughs> but I've never said it out loud. It did happen, did happen in a closed meeting, but it's from, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about getting somebody who's like that to now get it. And so that now he gets it not because we kind of externally forced him to do something, but we asked him to incorporate these issues and how he thinks about his strategic decision-making around defense, around making military you know, decisions on the ground. And he now gets it and how valuable and important it is for women to be incorporated into it, not just to protect them, but because lasting peace and security only happens when you have women fully involved on the ground in a place that's, that's conflict-ridden. Um, so, you know, those are the kind, I, I think we need to stay at it. You are absolutely right. But it's pretty complicated. From my personal view, it's, it gets really complicated. All right. So I'm a woman engineer. Very Yay! Good. Okay. We love that. Retired from a career in the federal government. Yes. Um, I came on, hired on as a GS7. Men with master's degrees, which I had, came on as GS9s. Yeah. My first job in a regional office for a major agency, I was the only woman professional. The regional director used to take people by my office to show that there was actually a woman in an office. <laughs> my first field position, um, the area director would not assign me to shipyard inspections because he had a maritime background, and women are unlucky on ships. I retired uh, as a GS-15, um, I was one of very few women GS-15s, and there are, to my observation, no people of color who had attained that rank in the government in my agency. What metrics are being used in the federal government to make sure that women and people of color are getting an equal shake? Yes. Fair shake. So Tina. Um, our Office of Personnel Management... So we are measuring, and we are looking, focusing on GS-15, We have, uh, and how do you make the leap to SES? We are me- measuring, so one of the things now that agencies get measured on are by gender, by, you know, we are looking at the salaries. There's been a directive for everyone to look from an equal pay perspective on their, you know, on their um, pay differentials. Uh, we publish that all, so pay transparency actually exists in the federal government. So, you know, that, that's one of the things that, that we want to make use of um, and measure. With each successive iteration of the um, uh, survey that's done of employees, we're putting more and more questions in there that get right to the issues of workplace, you know, flexibility of gender, you know, um, disparities and ethnic disparities for people's experiences, too. So the measuring piece, we absolutely agree with. And I think we've been building dashboards and other things that measure these things to try to improve that performance among the federal workforce. Uh, Lori Glass, president of Appalachian Community Capital, uh, 23 million people live in the region. Um, and I curious about the work that the council is doing um, to incorporate um, some of your efforts and initiatives directed towards rural communities in the U.S.? Um, Well, I will tell you, doing more in rural communities is something that across the board in the administration, you know, we we, we are working on. And it's one of the things I think we need to do more on. Um, Secretary Vilsack right now um, is working, you know, it may be revitalized rural council. You know, um, I think you'll see the president going to rural areas, you know, to talk about, you know, the, the, the needs there of, of everyone in the in rural communities. And we are working to make sure, you know, the, the needs of 
um, rural women and girls are particularly you know, addressed as well. So, and would welcome you know all their you know specific suggestions that folks have. You know, we know we need to deal with the whole um, opioid addiction problem, that which is particularly it's across the board everywhere, but it's particularly acute in rural areas and because of the distances that people have to go to to get treatment and to get help um, is a particular concern. Tina Chen, Assistant to the President yeah. and the Executive Director for the White House Council on Women and Girls. Thank you so very thank much. You. Thank you. That's Tina Chen on stage with Washington Post columnist Jonathan Capehart at the Aspen Institute's Forum on Women and Girls. The forum precedes an event on May 23rd called the United State of Women. It's being convened by the White House, and the Aspen Institute is involved. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, rate the show. It helps spread the word about the podcast. Discover more about the Aspen Institute at aspeninstitute.org. Follow the Institute year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening. <laughs>